Hello and welcome to this Bird by podcast in which I want to talk a little about the art and science of negotiation. But first, maybe a little bit about myself and my background and, you know, why I'm going to talk about these things. It was back in 1972 when I started life in labour relations. Yeah, a long time ago. 72. So long ago that Richard Nixon was still the president of the United States. You remember him? Watergate. Ireland had not yet joined the European Union, or the common market as it was popularly known then. Straight out of college, I'd become a union official. Now, I have to be honest, I never quite understood why they gave me the job, but I was not complaining at the time when they did. Except there was one problem. I knew nothing about negotiations. I had been a 1968 student radical, and we student radicals did not negotiate because our demands were so self-evidently just. You know, we didn't need to negotiate. We never understood why they were just not conceded as soon as we voiced them. You see, negotiations would involve us going downtown to do business with the man. Not for us. Now, though I was Irish and lived in Ireland, we all talked like Americans. Maybe we were against American imperialism. Uh, radical chick it was in those days. Bob Dylan, the go-to guys. Springsteen was still some years away. But even then, I knew I was born to run. But now I had to learn and learn fast because I was representing real people. You know, real people with real jobs. You know, with real problems. Here and now. Not in Vietnam. And the war there around which a great deal of student radicalism turned. Uh, Ho, Ho, Ho Chi Minh did not cut it when you were negotiating for clerical workers in the Dublin District Milk Board. Student radicalism was all about changing the world. All of the world. Now. Not tomorrow. Now. Today. But trade unionism, as I was very, very soon and very, very quickly to learn, is all about the mundane. About little things. Shift patterns, break times, being bumped up a salary grade. But little things that can make a big difference to individual lives. A few extra euro a week can go a long way when you're living on not a lot to start with. Or pounds, as they were in those days before we had euros. Now, I've become a union official. The radicalism of 68 student days was behind me, I was expected to deliver. You know, to deliver for real people with real jobs in real situations. Except, <laughs> I just didn't know what to do. Back then, 1972-73, there were no books on negotiations. Well, at least not in Ireland. There were no Harvard programs, and even if there were Harvard programs, nobody was paying, going to pay for me to go on one of them. A cold, Union training hall on a Wednesday night was the best you could hope for. Did I say cold? More like freezing. Thank God there was a warm pub next door where we could repair to when the training was finished. Oh, and another thing, you know, for a lot of you listening to this, you know, in those days, you couldn't Google anything. There was no internet. Computers that had a tenth of the power of an Apple iPhone had to be housed in a room the size of a football stadium. You know, turning on your computer, oh, I'll just Google that and see where it is and what about it. 
It really was a universe far, far away from the technology of today. If you ordered an old-fashioned landline in Ireland in those days, you'd be lucky to get one in six months. <laughs> Little chats of these tea phoning home from the Ireland of the 1970s. So, we had to learn from the older guys. In 1972, I was one of the first union officials to come straight into the union out of college. You know, most of the guys, most of the rest of them had come up to the shop floor. Shop stewards, then chief shop stewards, then full-time union officials. Savvy. You know, way, wise in the way of the world. You know, knew how things worked. You know, smart guys, very smart guys, some of whom went on to become government ministers. I often wonder where I went wrong in that regard. But then again, maybe it's just as well for Ireland that I did go wrong. The old guys, they taught me the basics. Be clear about what you want. Do your homework and work on your argument. Make sure you have the members on board. Do not promise them the sun, moon and stars. At all times, be honest. Never lie. You're only as good as your word. And being personally aggressive and insulting never gets you anywhere. Oh, and try to figure out where the other guy might be thinking and coming from. It sort of helps. I took it all on board. I've never changed. Always worked by those rules. And some of you listening to this podcast will recognize that that's me because that's the way I've always been. Oh, by the way, one of the young union representatives in the Dublin District Milk Board, you know, one of my first businesses to represent was called Bertie Ahern. Yeah, the same Bertie Ahern who later became Irish Taoiseach, Irish Prime Minister, and helped negotiate the Good Friday Agreement that ended 30 years of violence in Northern Ireland. I left the union world in the late 1970s. Yeah, I've been working the management side of the street ever since. But what I learned from those old union guys never left me. Still makes sense to this day. Honesty and integrity is at the heart of our craft. The art of the deal is only as good as the strength of your word. Maybe I've become a bit more sophisticated over the years. Well, I like to think I have. I can hear some of you chuckling the way they sophisticated. Tom, no way. Well, but that's what 50 years in the game and a library of books will do for you. The first book on negotiations I ever bought was Walton and McKersey's A Behavioural Theory of Labour Negotiations. A Bible of mine ever since, where it's the section of negotiations into four dynamics. Distributive bargaining, integrative bargaining, intra-organisational bargaining and attitudinal structuring. I have since added a fifth, media management. Nowadays, always be prepared for a Twitter storm. Just ask those who last Sunday announced the launch of a soccer super league to see their plans collect by Tuesday night. Launched and gone in the blink of a TikTok. Soon afterwards, I came across Getting to Yes by Fisher and Oirai. New insights, interests, fee positions, generating options. The very famous BAFTA, best alternative to a negotiated agreement separate the people from the problem or as many as you will know i prefer to put it nothing personal just business i put the structural approaches of walton and mccarsey together with what i consider to be the more behavioral methodology of getting to yes and i've found my own way of doing things i have added to it over the years for example with some insights from the likes of Kahneman's thinking fast and slow because negotiations are mostly about thinking. Thinking 
is 90% of it. The 10% at the table is the least of it. Negotiations are not some theatrical stage where a well-crafted speech impresses the crowd. To put it bluntly, bullshit will only take you so far and not very far at that. Speaking of bullshit, I do have a copy of Trump's The Art of the Deal. I use it as a doorstop. It's not much good for anything else. What put all of this in mind is an interview I read last weekend with Sir Ivan Rogers, the British permanent representative to the EU, basically the British ambassador to the European Union at the time of the Brexit referendum, who subsequently resigned from his Brussels position um, and from civil service when Theresa May's government refused to listen to him about how Brexit negotiations should have been handled. Some of May's teams actively briefed against Rogers, accusing him of being overly negative about the type of deal the UK could secure. As events have shown, Rogers' team was right. May's team no longer exists. The interview, the Rogers interview, is part of a series recorded by the think tank The UK and the Change in Europe, which tries to capture the recollections of those who were involved in the Brexit process over the past years. The Rogers interviews explain why Brexit ended up where it ended up. To put it bluntly, it's difficult to find in the interview any evidence that the UK did anything right when it came to the Brexit process and negotiations. It was not so much a case of, if it can go wrong, it will go wrong. Going wrong was in the DNA of Brexit from the get-go, from, from the very beginning. For a start, no one appeared to know what Brexit was supposed to mean other than it meant leaving the European Union. Now, as Paul Simon sang, there are 50 ways to leave your lover, and the UK never sure whether it wanted to slip out the back, Jack, or make a new plan, Stan. In the end, it just hopped at the bus, the bus with 350 million on the side, to make itself free. It also has to be remembered that the absence of such a plan was deliberate on the part of those who pushed for Brexit. For any explicit plan would push, split the Brexit coalition down the middle. It was BYOB, bring your own Brexit, and everybody did. Global Britain, that's Brexit. And then to globalisation, that's Brexit. Borders everywhere, that's Brexit. Frictionless borders, that's Brexit. And then to free movement, that's Brexit. No end to free movement for Prince going to Europe. That's Brexit. Brexit, obviously Brexit could not be all of these things at the same time. But they can be all of these things for the length of a referendum campaign. Look, you can be happy on the magical mystery tour bus as it trundles along until it reaches its final destination and you realise this is not where you wanted to go. Too late. Much too late. So after David Cameron resigned as UK Prime Minister the morning after he lost the referendum and the Brexit heavy hitters like Johnson and Gold stabbed one another in the back in the front, Theresa May became Prime Minister. Now, as Ivan Richards makes clear, May had no idea what Brexit meant other than stopping Europeans coming to Britain by ending free movement. She was obsessed by this, blinded by the light of this. Thought I'd slip in that reference to a Springsteen song, Blinded by the Light. Her keynote speech to the 2016 Tory conference defined Brexit in such a way as to make the hardest of Brexit the only possible outcome. From the Rogers interview, it becomes clear. 
there were no clear objectives on the UK side around the outcome of the Brexit process. But there was a great deal of cake and eat it thinking. A great deal of thinking that the UK could have all the benefits of the EU with none of the costs or obligations. After all, as Michael Gove said, it held all the cards. Or so it thought. At the end of the day, cake? It got crumbs, more like it. No thought was given to the process. How do you actually leave the European Union? How do you slip out the back, Jack? Because for me, the pressure from the right-wing tabloid newspapers to trigger Article 50 and get on with it was so great that she did so without a plan. And put herself and the whole of the UK under a two-year deadline. Thereafter, the UK was in a race against that self-imposed deadline. May never engaged with any of the key stakeholders on her own side, never explained her thinking, probably because there was no thinking. Of course, she got hung out to dry and push came to shove. She never put a team in place who knew what they were doing. A team without any great deal of European experience when Rogers was pushed out. And that team was up against a well-holed Brussels machine. A clapped out, Robin Reliant, racing against a Ferrari. That was about the size of it. As Roger says, the UK never did get inside the EU's head. Never really did try to grasp the EU's position. Mind you, many a Brexiteer thought the UK would collapse when the UK said it was off, and all the UK would have to do was pick up the pieces. Which, as we now know, of course, didn't happen. Well, when May was gotten rid of, Boris Johnson took over, and Johnson did even worse than May was doing. So badly that he's now trying to deny that he agreed to what he agreed, especially when it comes to Northern Ireland. That deal? Who did that deal? Who that did that deal? I did. No, I didn't. It appears to be his position. The purpose of this podcast is not to analyse the Brexit outcome. It is what it is, and how bad it is becomes clearer by the day. It is more to draw attention to how not to go about in negotiations. So, if you really want to screw up a negotiation, one, have no clear objectives. Two, delude yourself about what can be achieved. Three, overestimate your leverage. Four, have no negotiating team with the needed expertise. Send in the amateurs. Five, Pay no attention to the rules of the game. Six, do not think about the other side and the leverage they might bring into play. Seven, don't talk to your own people. Take them for granted. Eight, have no communication plan. Wing it. Nine, impose impossible deadlines upon yourself. And ten, be so impatient to get a deal done that you do not take the time to think through what it is you are signing and what the consequences of what you are signing might turn out to be. So there you have it. My top 10 tips for the art of no deal. Failure guaranteed. Now, as I was putting the notes together for this podcast, all hell started to break loose over the proposed European Soccer Breakaway Super League. According to one press report, Ed Woodward, then the chief executive more or less of Manchester United, quote, held an emergency briefing with seriously unimpressed Manchester United 
players at Carrington on Monday morning. Like Brexit, it appears that the Super Leagueeteers failed to engage with some of their key stakeholders before moving ahead and the rest. You know, if I look at the way they announced the Super League compared to my 10 top tips of how not to do things, uh, they probably tick about eight or nine of the boxes. No wonder the plan collapsed within 48 hours. <laughs> These guys obviously never took the Berg negotiation 101 pro. So to wrap it up, those old Irish Union guys back in the 1970s had it right. Be clear about what you want. Do your homework and work on your arguments. Make sure you have the members on board. Never promise the sun, moon and stars. Be honest. And remember, being personally aggressive and insulting never gets you anywhere. Good advice then. Good advice now. So, till the next time. And by the way, if you do happen to be in Sitges, yeah, the southern home of Berg, call into the Hotel Estella. Tell them Tom sent you. The caveat is on me. Until then, hasta la vista. <laughs>